ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm excited to welcome my friend Bridget O'Keefe to the podcast to talk about Roma in the Soviet Union, Soviet nationality policy, and the effort to transform gypsies into new Soviet people. Bridget O'Keefe is Associate Professor of History at Brooklyn College, where she specializes in late Imperial Russian and Soviet history. Her research interests include internationalism, Esperanto, selfhood, ethnicity, citizenship, and everyday Soviet life. She's the author of New Soviet Gypsies, Nationality, Performance, and Selfhood in the Early Soviet Union, published by Toronto University Press. Here's Bridget O'Keefe. So your book, New Soviet Gypsies, explores the effort to make Roma Soviet. Why don't we start by having you talk about the Roma in Russian society and their place in the Russian imagination? I guess I'd begin by just pointing out, and we might return to this later, that at the time of the 1926 Soviet census, the Soviet government counted within their realm, approximately 61,200 Roma, categorized in official parlance as gypsies. They acknowledged at the time, of course, that this was an underestimate, but the fact remained that this was a distinctly minority population and a relatively small one. And despite the smallness of the Romani population in the Soviet Union, Roma, known as gypsies, occupied an oversized place in the Russian and Soviet imagination. This wasn't something that began in 1917. It wasn't something that began in 1926. In many ways, we can best understand this oversized place of that gypsies occupied in the Russian imagination by thinking much earlier and thinking about how in the late 18th, but in much more accelerated fashion in the 19th century, Imperial Russian society was kind of swept up by a certain type of gypsy mania, and it was even referred to as such. This owes to the fact, right, which is somewhat unknown in that Imperial Russian society craved and invested a great deal of money and also energy in consuming what they understood to be gypsy music and a distinctly gypsy type of performance. So it became wildly fashionable to employ gypsy choirs at a kind of nobleman's estate or especially as the 19th century went on, right, in a fashionable restaurant or a fashionable nightclub that noble elites, but also merchants and other types of people would come together to drink and to spend lavishly, but also to literally delight in the consumption of what was a kind of craftily designed gypsy exotica. And so gypsies were hired, and this was a profoundly lucrative show business for them, especially at the turn of the century. They were hired to delight, to entertain, and to titillate imperial Russian audiences by singing sentimental romances, but also by outfitting themselves in performing the exotic gypsy of the imagination, right? Wear flowing dresses, shake some tambourines, shimmy your shoulders, right? And um, depending, in, depending on how body some of these performances might get, but to absolutely to indulge in this romantic vision of gypsies as freewheeling, liberty-loving, oversexed in kind of exciting ways, even if dangerous, but also as a, a vision of gypsies as a people who 
in ways that the, the public found both to be detestable and desirable, resisted the seeming demands of modern life. This was a vision that looked at gypsies on stage and saw them really not as human beings who are operating in a commercial next network, operating in a social network, the same way that everyone else in the room was, but who looked at them as a, a vision of what they wanted to believe, that gypsies were a truly distinctive, special type of population that was marked and characterized inherently by a rejection of belonging to society, by nomadism, and by a kind of love of uh, exotic liberty. So now, the Roma who are performing in these choirs, this is very important for the story, is the Roma who are making a great deal of money by performing on these stages and promoting their choirs in rather disciplined fashion, when they would get off the stage, of course, they're putting on right regular Russian-style, urbane-style dress back on. They're going home to their apartments because they lead avowedly settled lives. They're engaging with neighbors and peers who are of the same social rank and social status, in many cases, as those people that they entertain in the nighttime, right? And if anything, what you have here, and this is, this is kind of essential for understanding certain aspects of the story of, of Roma and the early Soviet Union, is you have a professional class of Romani entertainers who are occupying a distinctive niche in the imperial Russian economy and who are making loads of money and building up this kind of vision of gypsiness themselves, but then they're taking those profits that they're making and they're using it to invest in themselves, in their children, and in their own claims to belonging to Russia's imperial elite, right? So they're sending their children to um, expensive schools, they're employing expensive domestic servants, they're buying very expensive quote-unquote European dresses that they will wear. <laughs> um, actually, many of them will resist the kind of calls that they, they dress like quote-unquote gypsies um, on stage. But there was a fascination with gypsies that absolutely preoccupied the minds, particularly of this elite urban class of imperial Russian society. And this is why, right, not for, this should not surprise us. Anyone who has, has ever picked up a classic work of 19th or early 20th century Russian literature will find that you do not have a novel, right, or even a novella that does not feature some kind of freewheeling gypsy of some sort or a gypsy choir more often than not. And when those gypsies appear in those classic Russian novels that we're all familiar with, they're presented in that exotic, hyper-real fashion that was, that was what the imperial Russian audience craved. So why, why do gypsies inhabit this fascination as opposed to other ethnic groups within the Russian Empire? Is it because of their, the, the perception of them rejecting modernity, but also possessing this artistic flair, this colorful life, this nomadism, this sexuality is that, and perhaps other ethnic groups within the Russian Empire didn't have, didn't, weren't perceived with those qualities? I think this is something, right? It's not that the, that the Roma are the only quote unquote other in the imperial Russian imagination or the Soviet imagination. It's that you can find, and those in the field know this, right? There are plenty of other small minority peoples, many of whom are smaller than the Romani population um, themselves, who occupy distinctive places in the imperial Russian and the Soviet imagination. But this notion of the gypsies, and you can't see me, but I am using my scare quotes here, right? Um, the, the gypsies, they seemed to combine a distinctive 
variety of elements with both this exotic, exciting, titillating um, flair in terms of musical performance and dance, but especially this notion that gypsies were defined by a, a refusal to settle down, a refusal to be tamed, a refusal to operate in modern society as hinged, integrated individuals. If anyone was paying attention, it was clear to see that especially the people who were performing these types of, in, of, of images were very much integrated into the wider society and they were very much employed in, in a labor network and were very much tied into the wider imperial Russian society. But the image was powerful and it was, and it was wildly popular. So I think that this vision of nomadism, an innate love of liberty, a gypsy type of liberty in particular, and this equation particular of the female gypsy body with a truly unrestrained type of uh, desirable sexuality combined in this way to exert a kind of powerful force over the imperial Russian, but ultimately also the, uh, the Soviet imagination. Now, the, your book, it focuses on the attempt to create gypsies in the form of the, the new Soviet person. So I want you to talk about what the new Soviet person is in its, you know, ideal sense. And, and how does it relate to issues of, of citizenship and the performance of selfhood in this period of Russian history? So that very same vision of the quote unquote gypsy, the hyperreal gypsy that we just spoke of, in the Bolshevik imagination, that gypsy, that hyperreal gypsy, oversexed, unrestrained, freewheeling, nomadic, scattered, wild, insistently marginal, also criminal, right? There's a vision that this is a kind of deviant, wily people who feed off of hoodwinking and tricking others through their particular kind of, if not on the actual stage as choral performers, right, who are going to trick their audiences through their seductive powers, but on the streets who are, who make their living by hoodwinking people and, and, and making profits out of indulging their superstitious mentalities by reading fortunes and all of the rest. I, I kind of add all of these other elements to emphasize that taken all, all, taken all together, that vision of the gypsy was the absolute antithesis of what the Bolsheviks imagined the new Soviet person must be and must become. The idea of the new Soviet person was that you would be integrated, conscious, literate, healthy, disciplined, sober, cultured, all of these modern, enlightened, and, and avowedly conscious attributes. And the, the idea here is not that the Bolsheviks expected that overnight they could announce the creation of the world's first worker state and everyone will cheer and turn on the lights, right? And everyone becomes a new Soviet person. One of their most profound dilemmas of the many that they, they had was that they're facing a population that they look at in abject horror. This goes well beyond Roma. And they're looking at their population and thinking, oh my God, look at all of these backward people that we have to re-educate and to remold and ultimately reforge into a new Soviet citizenry, right? Now, the idea was, and the promise and the vision, is that the Bolsheviks were going to refashion life on Earth and provide in a distinctly socialist and patently Soviet manner the fertile social, economic, and cultural soil through which all of these backward peoples could be uplifted and reforged as modern, disciplined, sober, legitimate laborers in a socialist economy, but also kind of fully invested in the in the socialist project. So just to add to this, 
in looking out at the population that they fear and shirk back in horror from, right? Look at our backward people that we have to, to reforge into new Soviet citizens. They're crafting policies that are targeting distinctive um, segments of the population that they see as afflicted with particular types of backwardness. So peasants in the Bolshevik imagination, as we well know, were, uh, you know, in the Bolshevik imagination as backward and as harrowing as could possibly be in large measure. But there is also alongside Roma, in according to the 1926 census, a whole nother conceivably a hundred or so other nationalities that might even be a little modest, who were also seen to be marked and encumbered by distinctively ethnic types of backwardness. And so for these minority peoples, the Bolsheviks crafted what came to be known as Soviet nationality policy. And Soviet nationality policy's well-worn slogan was national informed socialist content. And the idea was, how do you take a backward ethnic minority who has been avowedly repressed by the czarist regime and give them the, equip them, but also entice them with the means of becoming new Soviet citizens? Well, you create national literatures in those distinctive minority ethnic languages. You create national theaters through which national art forms can flourish. You create national territories that can range from something like a rather small nationally defined collective farm to as large as an ethnically defined ostensibly, Soviet Socialist Republic, right? And all the spaces in between. But you give, you give these, these um, fundamentally defined as backward minority peoples the forms of nationhood with the intention of mobilizing those national forms to propagate socialist content and Soviet ideology in particular. So you might create, as the Soviet state did in 1930, a state gypsy theater in Moscow. And you might have Roma perform on that stage in what was imagined to be traditional gypsy costume. But the idea was that you use these, these mechanisms, these national forms, to celebrate and also to educate audiences right, with the vision of those backward gypsies becoming modern, becoming tamed, becoming settled, integrated, laboring, literate, healthy, cleaned, disciplined, new Soviet people. Now, this is this goes to something that I, when I was reading your book, that I was, I quickly became aware of. And that is, you're very careful in use in terminology, and especially your term, use of the term Roma, and your use of the term gypsy. And these come across quite clearly. And this, I think, goes to your comments about the nationality policy and the, the, the effort to create new Soviet people, you're, you're very careful in your use of these terms because they signify different things. Now, so talk about what, what what's the difference between these two terms and what do they signify for you? Wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad you asked me this question. So <laughs> I want to I wanna actually address the question in, in, uh, in two layers. One is I actually want to address the question of how we as kind of conscious individuals in 2016 as historians who are invested in the study of Romani histories and cultures, right, what the terms that we use. And then I also want to talk about what I attempted to do in using both of these ethnonyms throughout, throughout the book in a way that was designed to be thoughtful and strategic. So you will have in our current day, in our current time, particularly in the so-called West, 
perhaps even a kind of majority of Romani activists and even Romani studies scholars who will insist that we should step away from the ethnonym gypsies. And there is a very good reason behind this, right? Gypsies as an ethnonym has often been deployed in many ways thoughtlessly, but in many, many ways quite viciously and quite concertedly as an ethnic slur with undisguised pejorative connotations. And so there's a kind of uh, a movement and a call to when, when discussing Romani people and their present and their past and their potential futures to step away from the ethnonym Gypsy and all of its variants. This I appreciate and, and it feeds into why I make the choices that I make when I use the word Roma and when I use the word Gypsies. But I will admit that I am somewhat wary of for swearing the ethnonym gypsy altogether. And the reason is this, not because it's convenient for me, it's actually, <laughs> it has nothing to do with me being convenient. That there, the reason is that there are people who self-identify in 2016 loudly and proudly as gypsies and as gypsies. And in the sense of, I am proud to be a representative of a gypsy ethnicity. This is something different from, from the other way in which probably even in even more pronounced fashion that we all in this modern society usually encounter the ethnonym gypsy or gypsies in our current day. By which I mean, how, do we, how are we as participants and consumers of wider public discussions about Roma typically encountering discussions of them? Well, you turn on your TV and you switch to a certain cable station and you will be regaled with garbage reality television that sells pernicious stereotypes of quote-unquote gypsies with names like My Big Fat American Gypsy Wedding. There's that. But we can knock, knocking cable television is fairly easy. We can also turn to the New York Times. Perhaps knocking the New York Times is fairly easy as well. But when you occasionally encounter stories about Roma in the New York Times, you're very frequently going to see an indulgence of uninformed stereotypes. And often, right, even while the, the terminology used might be Roma, it's typically phrased as the Roma, as an interchangeable use for the gypsies. But the reason why I don't think that kind of don't hold fast and strictly to the dictum that we should be disempowering any possible use or, or disinclining ourselves to any possible use of the ethnonym gypsy is because I've had conversations with people who feel that it's actually kind of an insult to impose upon them that there's only one right or correct or worthy ethnonym, and that is, that is Rome, that they're content um, to embrace the ethnonym of gypsies. Now, that's related to the, quest, to the question and the decisions that I, I had to make in terms of writing of my book, but there's also something different that's going on in my book as well. And I do use, I will say this, I do use both ethnonyms, quite obviously. I've been doing it throughout our conversation, right, without taking the opportunity to pause and to explain. So I use Roma, I use gypsies. I use the kind of adjectival equivalents and variants in all of their forms. But I'm doing so with a distinct intentionality. So in the Russian language, who are the people that I have been studying Tsiganya, which translates into gypsies. This is, the, this is the ethnonym that was used in the Russian language sources and by the Roma and the, and the non-Roma whom I studied in, in the archives of the former Soviet Union. That, however, is not enough to justify using gypsies. <laughs> so I am using gypsies as a kind of way to signal the stereotypes that are at play here. I am using gypsies to signal all of that cultural freight that attached to those visions of 
who the gypsies are and what the meaning of gypsiness in Russian and or Soviet life as it was imagined to be that we began discussing at the start of our conversation. So when I am using, when I am using gypsies throughout the book, I am trying to faithfully represent direct speech, but I am also trying to represent the documented perspectives of the actors whose ideas, whose actions I am describing and analyzing in the book. And I am trying to call the reader's attention constantly to the fact that the word gypsy, the idea of a gypsy, carried with it all of that complex cultural content that we discussed. And then I step back, and when I want to refer to my own perspectives or my own what it is that I want to say about the people whom I'm studying, I make my very best effort to avoid connecting to myself what is often regarded as an ethnic slur or a word that carries inescapably a pejorative intonation, and I use Roma or Romani in my, in my narrative. And also right when I present on this in spoken speech. It is as as anyone who has made it this far into the podcast has probably picked up on, it is a very delicate dance, but but it's a worthwhile one. Well, I, I also see something else going on too here with this interchange between Roma and Gypsy. And this goes to the one of the, the major themes of the book, which is the issue of performance and the issue of performing nationality. Like in your, in your discussion of the place of the Gypsies in the Russian imagination in the imperial period, there, it's very much they're performing the stereotypes of Russians, of Russian perceptions as a way of entertainment. But also too, in, in the effort to transform themselves and be transform themselves and also be transformed by outside forces into new Soviet people, they're also performing a gypsiness, a gypsiness nationality. Is that also going on as well? It is, right? And this is actually at the heart of, this is at the heart of the book and this is at the heart of the analysis, right? And it actually goes back, we can talk about this as it relates to the Imperial Russian precursors, but for a moment I just want to pause and consider the the connection here with Soviet nationality policy and its designs. Soviet nationality policy is premised fundamentally on seemingly two irreconcilable philosophical principles. The one is that, as the Bolsheviks claimed was a fundamental ideological principle of theirs, that human beings are raw material, that they're plastic, that they're malleable, that you can start out as a filthy, shoeless, illiterate, nomadic, quote-unquote backward person, but reborn in the fertile Soviet soil can be remade into a sober, disciplined, conscious, legitimately laboring worthy member of society. So on the one hand, an ideological commitment to the faith in the plasticity of human beings. At the same time, Soviet nationality policy, from its very inception and from its very design, tethers the minority peoples of the Soviet Union to essentialized visions of who they are as representatives of those nationalities. At one and the same time, the notion is you are going to remake and, and re-engineer new Soviet citizens from the cultural essential qualities that make them up as representatives of an ethnicity. Soviet nationality policy in practice demanded that the Roma whom I studied, and not just Roma, they're kind of a devoutly typical case in this, that they mobilized both of those principles in when they did engage in it and try to make claims and to advance themselves using this 
oftentimes very flexible framework of Soviet nationality policy. So if you are a, a Romani citizen of the Soviet Union in 1926 or in 1935 and even later, and you want to make a claim on the basis of nationality policy's various premises, what you do, and my Romani subjects quickly learn this is, you approach the relevant officials representing the various outposts of the Soviet bureaucracy, and you mobilize all of those stereotypes. I, as a member of the gypsy nationality, I was born into a family that was oppressed and kept backward and who led miserably nomadic lives precisely because we weren't regarded as human beings under the czars. I, as a member of the gypsy nationality, am inescapably all of those things that you fear about gypsies as a whole, illiterate, backward, etc., etc. This is why, this is why Soviet nationality policy must be mobilized in the service of my reforging. So the, the, <laughs> the policy demanded that these minority Soviet citizens themselves not just perform the stereotypes that they were categorically tethered to from the start, but that they re-entrench them while at the same time using them to make the argument that they are in the process of becoming new Soviet people regardless of their ethnicity. So there's this fundamental tension at work from the very start, and it doesn't end even after the most exuberant days of early Soviet nationality and policy uh, are over. In many ways, right, where contemporary Russian society is still marked by this, this fundamental tension of, of requiring members of minority populations to deploy and also to reinforce and also to perform the stereotypes that they were that were ascribed to them from the start. So is it? And I, I'm I want to ask this, but I, I'm I'm hesitant because I don't want to get into a, a kind of theoretical discussion of this. But I, I'm still interested. Was it possible for a gypsy to become a new Soviet person and lose their gypsiness? This is an exceptional question, and it's not actually a terribly easy one to answer because there's a kind of whole range of nuances at hand. But I'm going to do my best because the question actually gets at the heart of what I am hoping to do in my work. You could, and many Roma did, become new Soviet men and women. And they did this happily, gladly, grudgingly, what have you, a mix all the places in between. And many of these Roma, in a variety of ways, became new Soviet men and women precisely through their engagement of the Soviet nationality policy that we have discussed. That said, nationality never withers away for them. They are required, ultimately, always, as every Soviet citizen was, to embrace what it meant to belong to the universal, to belong to the Soviet citizenry in general, and to be united by that uh, Soviet cultural content. But all Soviet citizens from start to finish were also required to identify as belonging to a certain type of nationality. So much so as we well know that it will be inscribed into your documentation papers and your passports, etc. What I ultimately see happening here is that Romani citizens of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and the 1930s they do self-actualize, they self-fashion themselves as new Soviet men and women in ways that they, it's not just them who are recognizing it as, as such. But in most cases, you don't just get to say, well, 
I've, I've worn my gypsy costume. <laughs> I've played out my backwardness. I've gone to school. I've gone to the factory. I've worked hard on the collective farm. And now I'm going to take it all off. Here I'm speaking metaphorically because they are still required to recognize that they have a nationality and that that nationality comes with all kinds of cultural baggage, cultural baggage that they themselves in, in mobilizing Soviet nationality policy help to reinforce. That said, there is a certain type of flexibility that Soviet citizens and not just Roma did have the opportunity sometimes in, and sometimes in some places and for some nationalities more than other that they could engage and make remarkable use of. So here I want to transition to actually discussion of a special case that emerged in my study. And this special case is a, is a gentleman, a Romani citizen of the Soviet Union whose name was Alexander Germano. Alexander Germano is actually not an unknown name in the annals of Soviet history if you're paying attention to certain types of topics. Alexander Germano is not a kind of anonymous everyday person in Soviet history in the sense that he was in his own lifetime celebrated and promoted and hailed as the Soviet Union's most accomplished gypsy writer. So when, as the Soviet Union often did, produced both for domestic consumption but also international consumption, translations of the literature of the minority peoples of the Soviet Union, right, as a kind of emblem of their liberation under the conditions of Soviet socialism, Germano's work, his poetry, his short stories, even his, his journalistic writings that appeared relatively frequently, particularly in the 1930s, but also to some degree in the 1920s and even the 1940s, they would be reproduced. His work would be chosen as the emblematic literary work of a remarkable Soviet gypsy writer. Now, that said, you would think that it would be a pretty straightforward case. He's a new Soviet person, right? He's a model Soviet man, and not just a model Soviet man, but a model Soviet writer. It's actually not so simple. And the reason why it's not so simple is because throughout my archival study in all different types of archives, and this happened over time and over a series of a year and a half, it did not all fall in my lap at once, but when it finally came into view and all the elements that were in place, I thought, wow, this, this, this is right, the kind of, this is kind of the achievement in many ways of doing precisely the question that you asked. Using Soviet nationality policy as a member of uh, a nationality that is recognized as a particularly backward nationality, using that nationality policy to claim belonging to a modern Soviet citizenry, and then once you've claimed it, to kind of slough off your connection or your ties to that very nationality itself. So just to back up a little bit, how I unearthed this remarkable story was I charted what Germano was saying about himself, about his life story, and in particular about his nationality through a series of autobiographical statements that he had written throughout his lifetime. Uh, Sean, you and I, right, and most of our listeners know that Soviet citizens always had to be narrating their life stories. They always had to be composing autobiographies. So there's nothing particularly extraordinary in the fact that through all of my archival wanderings, I would collect and over time compile a variety of these autobiographic statements that he had composed throughout the years of his Soviet life. But something struck me because the very last one that I found in my archival studies dated to 1952. And in an autobiographical statement that Germano authored in 1952, he asks himself, this is not my paraphrasing, this is the question that Germano asked in an autobiography he had written in 1952. Am I a gypsy 
or am I not a gypsy? <laughs> On its face, right? It's rather puzzling coming from the Soviet Union's most celebrated gypsy writer. And he answers the question and he explains and narrates his professional but also his civic life in the Soviet Union through the prism of this question. And he itemizes and explains a list, a whole series, a lifetime of accomplishments, right? By this time he's aging and, and he doesn't know it yet, but he only has a few more years of his life in any event. And he's talking about how when he was a child, he lived in abject conditions and was generally basically orphaned by impoverished parents and how he had to struggle and how he was reborn in the context of the Civil War and how he served the Red Army. This is, this, is, this is very socialist realist, and, and, and it's also, right, up until now, very notably, there has been no ethnic content attached to it. Where the ethnic content gets attached to it begins when he then reaches the mid-1920s, and where he is as a struggling young Soviet man who is um, working menial jobs in Moscow, but trying to make a name for himself as a literary author worthy of the Soviet name. And he says, again, very evasively and somewhat savvily, somehow in that year of 1925, someone suggested that I might expose my talents and use my talents to help an institution known as the All-Russian Gypsy Union. We might talk about the All-Russian Gypsy Union at some point, but it was a kind of mutual aid organization run by young Romani activists who were trying to organize with official Soviet license, the kind of larger civilizing mission directed at the gypsy nationality, uh, gypsy nationality in particular. So Germanov says in 1952, somehow, mysteriously, someone suggested that I might want to um, dedicate my, my talents in the service of the work of the All-Russian Gypsy Union. Nevers explains why he might be receiving the suggestion. And from there, it becomes a tale of how over a period of more than 25 years thereafter, he dedicated himself to uplifting the gypsy people of the Soviet Union, how he strove to work among them, to live among them, to learn their gypsy language, and to advocate on their behalf, and to write literature in their name, to reflect their struggles, to reflect also their triumphs as new Soviet gypsies. But ultimately he answers in the actual prose version of that autobiographic statement, but also in response to the itemized number five item on that questionnaire itself, who are you by nationality? He is a Russian. Now, this is remarkable only because in autobiographic statements that Germano had authored in the late 1920s, throughout the 1930s, and even in the 1940s, the ones that I have at my disposal, he was most typically going to great lengths to emphasize that he was a representative of the gypsy nationality, that he himself was a gypsy, and not only that he was a gypsy, but that he was particularly proud and happy to represent the Soviet gypsy people as their most celebrated author, because he was in many ways saying, I am a testament to precisely what Soviet nationality policy had promised to my quote unquote backward gypsy people, that the Soviet conditions will allow us to remake ourselves, to reforge ourselves, be reborn as full human beings. So all kinds of autobiographic statements from 1925. You can also see how the emphasis is accelerating as the years go by, right? First, the first wake up moment he appears to have in the mid-20s, where he first 
says, I, I'm a gypsy, is, is kind of said and then left on its own. A couple years later, he not only identifies in 1928 as a gypsy, but he also lays claim to what, according to this hyperreal vision, might be the most characteristic marker of gypsy backwardness. He claimed that when he was a child, he occasionally wandered, right, in his gypsy backwardness. And most definitely, when he applied to become a member of the Union of Soviet Writers, which, by all accounts, was the, was the crowning achievement of his life, he emphasized from, moment to, from one moment to the next how he was not just a gypsy, but how he was a Soviet gypsy who had worked faithfully, not just to lift himself up, but to lift up all of his fellow gypsies and into the light of Soviet civilization. Now, the 1952 autobiography where he claims he's a Russian and, and identifies uh, his life's work and his life's mission as being about a sympathetic Russian who helped energetically to uplift Soviet Union's gypsies did have a precedent. The earliest autobiographic statement that I could find of Germano's actually came from 1925. So it would have been probably just before he did start involving himself with the work of this institution known as the All-Russian Gypsy Union. And in that autobiographic statement from 1925, he did not claim he was a Russian, but he also did not claim that he was a gypsy. What he said was, my parents were foreigners. They wandered into the Russian Empire from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But he is in some ways, but this is before he realizes how much can be strategically made of it, he is making some hesitant signals because what he says very distinctively was that his mother loved to travel and that she had convinced his Czech father to sell off the family's junk and to start traveling aimlessly. Now, after, after Germano, Germano dies, he remains in the Soviet pantheon as, as the most celebrated gypsy writer of the Soviet Union. And he was celebrated actually uh, fairly energetically. But the way that his biographers would later write these kind of essays to introduce his work as they might appear in late Soviet publications, it was always to point out that his father was Czech and his mother was a Moravian gypsy. And Germano himself was a dedicated Soviet citizen who uplifted the gypsy people as someone who had, right, as it is kind of rather unsubtly implied, mastered the culture and the civilization of the heroic Russian people. And that goes a long way in explaining his kind of diligent service. So Germano, nonetheless, is an exceptional story, right? Most of the other people who, who figure prominently in my story don't actually disavow their gypsiness, even after the war when, when the real prize is, is claiming Russianness. In fact, many of his, Germano's fellow activists who worked hand in hand with him in the 1920s and the 1930s to get the state to invest not just in making promises to uplifting Romani citizens, but to actually provide the conditions for their uplifting, they continued to make similar types of arguments that they had made in the 20s and 30s, right? Which is, I am... Um, a Romani citizen who has struggled and worked and as a faithful Soviet citizen has, has done my best to become uh, conscious and disciplined and, and cultured. But I nonetheless represent a people that remains mired in a backwardness that requires the remedial help and financial investment of, of the Soviet state. And if anything, Germano's peers who continue with this type of dialogue in the post-war period they endure, it seems, uh, a far greater disenchantment because they're still hanging on to a, a strategy that had worked for them somewhat in the 20s and 30s and 
Soviet nationality policy does remain in place and gypsies still remain on the official roster of, of, of officially recognized Soviet nationalities. But the um, tangible affirmative action that they might have um, enjoyed in the 20s and 30s isn't actually there in the 50s or the 60s or in the 70s. That, that's really fascinating. L let's step back a little bit and talk about, because the, the Soviet effort to transform its citizens into new Soviet people was very much based on institutions, schools, workplace, collective farms, social organizations like the Komsomol or the party or, uh, you know, the all Russian gypsy union. Let, let's talk about the process of transformation itself, like the, the mechanisms of transformation uh, that Roma encountered in, in the 1920s and 1930s, and, and specifically talk about the effort on the one hand to turn them into productive workers, and on the other to turn them into sedentary citizens in that sense of, you know, trying to get them into collective farms. Well, of course, the uh... The Bolshevik dilemma required um, Bolshevik action. As, as I said earlier, right, the Bolsheviks are thinking in rather perplexed ways about this distinct subset, the subcategory of their population known as gypsies. And they are in many ways maddened, puzzled, and absolutely overwhelmed. There is even, you can find quite explicitly in the documents, in the archives, right, uh, rather frank admissions that on the part of certain kind of government bureaucrats who were in various ways, half-hearted usually ways, tasked with refashioning the lives of, of, of gypsies in the Soviet Union and transitioning them from their extensive backwardness to sedentary, productive, socialist culture lives. Those bureaucrats very often kind of, you could kind of, I could kind of imagine them throwing up their hands and saying, right, this is an impossible task. This is a particularly deviant population. But ultimately, those bureaucrats weren't the real movers and shakers of the story of the 1920s, the 1930s story of, quote unquote, transitioning the Soviet Union's gypsy population into Soviet modernity. The real movers and shakers, the real actors, the real agents of this transformation, the socialist transformation of the Soviet Union's gypsy population were Roma themselves. So what you have here, and Germano kind of gave us an idea, a way of, of thinking about this as well, what you have is ultimately the youthful descendants of that elite class of Romani performers from late Imperial Russia in the early 1920s looking around them, right, in their kind of urbane habitats in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And on the one hand, they're thinking, how can we get this uh, show business started again, right? How can we, particularly in the conditions of the new economic policy, perform for an audience that still wants us to perform gypsiness? How can we kind of get that up and running again? But part and parcel of that was also, how can we make this revolution work for us? And they pick up on the claims of Soviet nationality policy. And they're also looking around at their neighbors and their friends and their, and their fellow members of, of the Komsomol, a few of them were. And they're, they're seeing other representatives of other nationalities pursuing the nation building for their minority peoples. And so you have, rather remarkably, there's a moment in 1924 where these young Romani activists, men and women alike, turn to local Soviet authorities, first at the Moscow level, but also at the all-union level, and say, we're here too, and we're ready to claim, right? We're ready to claim our affirmative action. And they don't just say it that way. What they actually say is, we are prepared and willing and committed to 
being to serving as the vanguard of the gypsy proletariat. And their first effort at institution building is to propose something that they initially call the, organiz- the Society for the Organization of the Proletarian Gypsy Masses, right? Which is just a mouthful for anyone. And it in, may in part explain why that wasn't the name that ultimately was chosen for the institution that they create. They actually do ultimately obtain official license in 1925 for an all-Russian gypsy union, and it is exactly what I said it was. It was designed to be a mutual mutual aid organization that was supposed to put at its forefront advanced, educated, literate Romani citizens of the Soviet Union, and to have them oversee and put much of the necessary legwork and energy behind all of these various grandiose projects, which is how do you take a population that is overwhelmingly illiterate and teach them very quickly to become literate, and not just literate in terms of, of Russian language skills, but literate also in terms of a distinctly ethnic language, a a gypsy language. How do you take wily, wandering, criminal, deviant, gypsy nomads who, right, as 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 the idea went, are are scattering their deviance all over the empire, unrestrained. How do you get those people and harness their innate productivity or potential and settle them on farms or get them employed in Soviet factories? So the All-Russian Gypsy Union said, we're here, we're loud, we're proud, and this is a kind of organization at its height of, of maybe 200 Romani activists who are operating on a shoestring budget and who are contending with the outright skepticism and, let's be honest, outright racism of many of the bureaucrats that they keep keep, um, coming to to ask for financial help, but also organizational uh, tutelary help as well. These are people who are learning on the job, not just how to to perform what it means to be a good Soviet citizen, but who are learning on on the job how to be politicians, right? How to be political entrepreneurs, how to work the system, how to, how to sub- submit requests for, for a budget, right? And so ultimately, the All-Russian Gypsy Union is this is absolutely pivotal institution in all of this. But the All-Russian Gypsy Union in its very short-lived time was denounced and shuttered after a matter of two and a half years on on the notion that it was an abject failure because, of course, it had failed to take what what the census highlighted were 61,234 gypsy citizens of the Soviet Union and to engineer them overnight into literate, laboring, sedentary um, people. But while the state shuttered them on account that it was a failure, the All-Russian Gypsy Union in many ways was a bashed success. Because the activists who ran the All-Russian Gypsy Union, while they were frustrated almost every turn, they did initiate most of the policy, not just the policy proposals, but the policy initiatives that the Soviet state would then, using its own bureaucratic arms, adopt after the shuttering of the Gypsy Union itself. Likewise, the activists who were providing the legwork and the energy and the idea and the enthusiasm behind the All-Russian Gypsy Union themselves, they ultimately get denied that framework of, of, of leading a Gypsy Union, but they were incorporated into the various sectors of the Soviet bureaucracy that would, that would take over, a, in typically half-hearted fashion, right, the task of creating gypsy collective farms, or a gypsy theater, or gypsy language schools, or to create a gypsy, an alphabet for the gypsy language. All of these things that were attempted and in many ways actually pursued in the, in the 1930s itself. 
And beyond this, what you have is a collective of activists who were successful in reaching out to wider communities throughout the Romani population of the Soviet Union to try and get them on the board, but also to try to train them in not only speaking Bolshevik, but how to speak like a member of a nationality who is, who is owed uplifting, who is owed the equipment for uh, their own socialist transformation. And so the All-Russian Gypsy Union, while it only lasted formally for two and a half years, it lived on well past its expiration date in all kinds of ways. So all of these things that I mentioned, that they were all priorities of the All-Russian Gypsy Union in a short time, they were not just attempted, but they were in many ways achieved with varying degrees of, of success in the late 1920s and the 1930s. There was an alphabet created for the Gypsy language in the Soviet Union. There were. They were short in number. They were resource poor, as so, much, so many institutions were in the early Soviet Union. There were Gypsy language schools. There were a number of ethnically defined gypsy collective farms created throughout the Soviet Union. There was even, notably for a time period in the mid-1930s, an effort to consider and formulate potentially workable plans for creating an autonomous gypsy region within the Soviet Union. That actually did not come to pass. And there was the creation of industrial workshops and factories for a primarily gypsy labor force. And perhaps most notably, because it was the one institution born of these nation-building projects to last not only World War II, but also last throughout the entire history of the Soviet Union, there was the creation of a Moscow State Gypsy Theater. All of these institutions through which gypsy citizens of the Soviet Union did become new Soviet men and women, they were in many ways initiated and pursued on, on the initiative of, of Roma themselves. And finally, as you've stated, the Roma population of the Soviet Union was incredibly small. I mean, 61,000 people, you know, certainly this isn't, there were more, but what they could count, it, I can't imagine it being much more than this, but it, it's a very small number. And, and as you know, of course, as we all know, there's been a, a lot of literature in the last 20 years or so about Soviet nationalities and ethnic minorities within within Russia in general. What does focusing on a small group like the Roma, what does it say to you about Soviet nationality policy? What, what does a small group like that illuminate about it? I think that looking at this one case study illuminates things that are specific to this case study. And we've spent a great deal of time, you and I, just now talking about that. But there's more than that, because while there is the fact that there are certain there are certain ways in which the case of Roma is unique and special here, the overwhelming story here of how minority citizens, in this case, Romani citizens of the Soviet Union, mobilized uh, nationality policy and made it work for them in a variety of ways, even a variety of ways that some might come later to regret. In that way, the Roma I studied are devoutly typical of the experience of, of Soviet nationalities. And this is being presented not as a, look what the case of Roma can tell us about the case of Roma in the Soviet Union. I'm presenting the story of Romani citizens of the, of the Soviet Union as a way to illuminate how minority citizens of the Soviet Union could and did engage this framework of Soviet refashioning, self-fashioning, across the board. Now, this, there's, a, there's this moment from my time in the archives that I always remember, despite the fact that I did not include it in the book. 
And it's a moment I had in Garf that will stay with me forever. But I was reading the transcripts of a meeting, and forgive me if I don't remember the exact year, but it was probably along the lines of 1930 or 1931 or 1932. But it was a meeting of representatives of of the various minority peoples of the Soviet Union called to come to Moscow to talk about their successes, to talk about their challenges, to talk about what comes next. And there's a moment in the transcript where a squabble breaks out between one of the representatives of the Romani citizens and representatives of the Soviet Union's Chinese population. And what happens is, is the, the representative of the Soviet Chinese po population takes umbrage at the fact that the Romani activist was making a rather strong argument that the gypsies were the most backward of all of the Soviet Union's minority peoples. And so his, his Chinese interlocutor sits back and says, wait a second, my people are the most backward of all of the backward people, and that is why we require the most investment. The reason why I tell this is not just because, you know, it's kind of a vibrant moment from the archives, but because it spoke so profoundly to lived everyday mechanics of Soviet nationality policy in practice. Soviet nationality policy demanded unrelentedly that minority peoples heed the call that every other member of the population had to heed ostensibly, right? Which is become somebody and become not just somebody or anybody, but become a new Soviet person. But Soviet nationality policy was a specific mechanism. It was a spe specific framework and one that could be rather flexible in its in its deployment, it gave minority peoples a way to make claims, a way to integrate themselves, a way to learn how to become new Soviet people. It gave them a way to assert themselves and to register themselves and to participate as, as new Soviet men and women. So I think that while there is certainly the uniqueness of the, this Romani case in particular, it's being offered here in the service of highlighting the tremendous mobilizational qualities that nationality policy gave not just to the state or abstract bureaucratic institutions, but that it gave to everyday citizens who are tethered to their various nationalities themselves. That was Bridget O'Keefe, Associate Professor of History at Brooklyn College, where she specializes in late Imperial Russian and Soviet history. She's the author of New Soviet Gypsies, Nationality, Performance, and Selfhood in the Early Soviet Union, published by Toronto University Press. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on last week's podcast with Erica Monahan. I'm glad so many people enjoyed the discussion. Erica also got a question from a listener, Travis. Travis writes, Excellent episode all around. I'd like to ask a follow-up question if possible. Dr. Monahan mentions a variety of interesting stories involving the early modern Siberian settlements and trading outposts. How are they reaching these regions? Are they only coming along with merchants as part of their families or in their or their employ? Or are they migrating or moving throughout Siberia independently, either as merchants themselves or for other purposes? Or is the immigrant population of women in Siberia limited during this period? Are women in the region at this time mostly native to the area? Erica sent me the following response to read on the podcast. Thank you for these great questions. No one has entirely satisfactorily determined the early modern demographics of Siberia, let alone a more detailed picture of women, who I gather you are most interested in with this question. People reached Siberia mostly by following rivers, which included portages. Winter travel was actually preferred because it could be nearly impossible in the wet shoulder seasons and the Tura River became too low late summer. 
By the early 18th century, Russian settlement had preceded such that Russians accounted for roughly two-thirds of the Siberian population. The population of Siberia was almost half a million. 323,000 were Russians, 159,800,000 were non-Russians, which included several thousand Bukharans. Probably the majority of the Russians in Siberia were soldiers, Cossacks, and government servitors. Fur traders and trappers and peasants also came. Peasants were more likely to come with their families, while fur traders and trappers were more transient. Throughout its first centuries, Russian men far outnumbered Russian women. In 1630, the state actually decreed for 150 women and girls to be relocated to Siberia to serve as wives. The term Sibirnyak emerged in the 17th century, indicating someone born of a Russian and an indigenous parent. The mother was almost always indigenous. Thank you very much, Travis, for your question and Erica for your response. If listeners have a question for a guest or a comment, please send it to me on the contact page on the podcast website or post them as a comment. I'll try to get the guest to provide an answer. I also want to give a special thanks to a faithful listener for coloring the site's header image. I found this image during my dissertation research in a 1928 issue of the Komsomol journal Smyrna. This colorized version, which is the header of the website at the moment, was done by the cat's paw, Jabba Lashat, hailing from, hailing from outside the mouse hole. Thanks again for doing that, Jabba. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!